uh, to say a prayer on their behalf before we uh, start our uh, sermon this morning. So please bow with me. To heaven, Lord, three young people have given themselves to your kingdom last week. We ask, Lord, that we be good mentors, we be good servants, we be good encouragers, that we might be good friends to these three young people. Lord, we know that the growth of this church is tied to the youth. We ask, Lord, that you continue to bless us with young people, young families, that you might grow this church and this church might still continue to be a blessing in this community. Lord, help us to have the energy, the strength, and the encouragement to come alongside them wherever they are at in their spiritual walk and help develop them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Gordon. Key scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Jeremiah once again. In chapter 29, verses 1 through 7 appeared to be the base for his series of lessons, and we're adding verses 10 through 12 this morning. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Uh, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shiphan, and to Gamarius, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And the letter read, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, skipping to verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then... You will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And so is the word. 
Well, I hope our technology will continue to work this morning. If it doesn't, you'll have one of the shortest sermons ever. Get the smile off your face. We continue on with our sermon series, Bringing Prosperity to Your Community. Today's title is Stay Calm and Carry On. Anna wanted to put keep calm and carry on, but nobody says keep calm. Everybody says stay calm, but the phrase really is keep calm and carry on. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 7, and verse uh, 10, 11, and 12 remind us that we live as resident aliens. We're to make our living among the pagans. We don't hold back and we don't try to undermine the culture, Levi, in which we live in, and we should be increasing our numbers. Our prosperity is tied to the prosperity of the city. Jeremiah, is, through God, is telling us that, that if we will prosper as God's people, then the city will prosper. Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for the city. Verse 11 specifically says, God's put you here to better you. He's got blessings for you. He's maturing you. So what did that look like, and how does that relate to us today? Weren't they talking about the Israelites being pulled into exile, Keith? Yes, they were. But we can look at these scriptures, and we can see how we are to live today in that pagan culture. Some people say, well, that doesn't really apply to us today, but Peter says it does. Look what Peter says. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Peter's saying that you're part of a kingdom that God has initiated, but you're living in another place. You're part of a kingdom that hasn't been completed yet. So right now we're living as foreigners, as exiles. See, we're part of God's kingdom, but we're living in another kingdom on earth. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up from evil. Live as God's slaves Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter is saying, stand out. Be people of integrity. Be people of honor. Be people who do such good things that nobody can say anything bad about us. Well, how do we do that as believers how do we live with integrity and have influence in culture that doesn't share our same value? And to, to see that, then we're, we're going to go to the book of Daniel. So if you would, open up your Bibles and turn to the ch second chapter of Daniel. Daniel, in between Ezekiel and Hosea. 
Now, I'm not going to have time to read all 49. Is there 49 verses in this chapter? You can nod your head if you're there. Tell me I'm right. But I'm going to paraphrase a little bit this morning for you. As you look for Daniel chapter 2, I want you to remember three weeks ago when we started this, when we're living in a pagan culture, then Louise, we have four main choices on how we're going to react and how we're going to relate to this pagan culture. The first is that we can just pull back, right? We can just have a victim mentality and practice monastic living like we're going to live in a monastery. And some of you are saying, well, none of us live in a monastery. But you can live like you live in a monastery, can't you? Not interacting with anybody else, just keeping to yourself and only keeping to those in the church and never dealing with anybody else. Or number two, you can fight back. You can be aggressive jerks. And try to overcome evil with evil. You know, there's an old phrase, you, you can't out-puke a buzzard. Okay? These people you can. These people try. They're trying to fight back. It's kind of like the, the cage fighter. You get in the cage with me and I'll put you down. Or there's a third, they just give in. They just blend in. Everything is relative to them, and they stand for nothing. And I've got to tell you that many in the church today have taken number three as their policy. And then there's what I believe is the godly reaction, the godly way to relate, and that's to stand out, to do like David did and live peaceably with discernment to be resolute that we're going to honor God, to respectfully stand out. If Daniel had a verse that his character lived by throughout his life, if he could pull a theme verse out, I think it would be Romans 8, 38, right? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Because Daniel lived a life of submission and joy and an attitude of peace. I really believe that Daniel believed that God had his best interest and the Israelites' best interest at heart. You see, it's so much easier... Uh, to get through life when we believe that God has our best interest at heart. When things are going wrong, when the pink slips arrive, when the divorce papers arrive, when, when, when your child is in the hospital, the hope of knowing that God works all things out for the good of those who love him makes a total difference and how we live our lives. And this is the theme and character of Daniel's behavior throughout his book. So let's go together into this story. Again, I don't have time to read all 40... Are you there? 30, 49? 49 verses. So I'm going to paraphrase a little. And if I, if I get off at all, you can tell me after the sermon. After the sermon. So, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, 
that has pulled Israel into exile now is trying to assimilate Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and Daniel, okay? They've tried to assimilate them. They've taken away their Jewish names. They've given them pagan Babylonian names. They probably demasculated them. They've taken away their temple. They've taken away the sacred things in the temple. And now they're trying to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams at night. And they cause him great stress and they keep him up. So he goes to his sorcerers and astrologers and his enchanters and his, uh, I almost said musicians, his magicians. And he says, tell me what I've dreamed. And they step back and they say, well, wait a second. That's not how it works. You tell us the dream and then we'll come forward and we'll tell you, we'll interpret what it means. And I said, no, 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 that's not how it works. And he says, no, that is how it works, or this is the time that it's going to work like this. And if you don't interpret my dream for me, wise men, I'm going to kill you, cut you into pieces, and turn your house into rubble. And you thought being on the cabinet of Trump was tough. Well, they come back and they say, well, you... This is not how it works. Nobody can do this. Nobody can, can tell you what you dreamt and then interpret it. That's impossible. He then gives us a look into the life of a king who doesn't trust his wise men. And he says, you have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. He's, he's wising up to these enchanters, to these, some translations may say Chaldeans. Chaldeans were great astrologers, but they would try to interpret everything through the stars. So if you see that in your translation, that's what it means. They're astrologers. He's, he's gaining wisdom into they're trying to use his interpretations to benefit them, okay? This is, this is kind of like wise parenting. You know, you come home and there's spaghetti sauce across the ceiling. You and your wife have been away on, you know, going to the movies. You come home and there's spaghetti sauce on the ceiling. And you look up at that and you think, well, how did that get there? That'll be impossible. That's popcorn ceiling, and I can't scrub that off. If you bleach it, it won't match with the rest of the house anymore. It's a big deal. I want to know how that spaghetti sauce got on it. Now, if you don't have a lot of experience with children, you'll take said child one and said child two and pull them together and say, how did that spaghetti sauce get on the ceiling? And they'll tell you something. They'll look at each other. They're doing the mind meld. Child one will look up and say, well, I was testing a noodle, and I pulled it out, and I accidentally dropped it on said child two's hand, and that scared them because it was hot, and they flicked the spaghetti sauce up on the ceiling, said child two. 
And said child two says, yes, that's the way it went. Uh Uh-huh. But if you're a little bit more wise and you've been around the block and you've had children before, you take said child one and said child two and you separate them. And the story changes. And you find out that child one did take the noodle out of the, the hot boiling pot and throw it at said child two, which said child two took the spoon of spaghetti sauce and flung it onto her sister. Not saying this has ever happened at my house. Yes. So now, now the true story comes out. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar wants. See, he doesn't want to tell the story and have them just use, use interpret the dream for their own benefit. He's had that happen before, evidently, in the past. Now he wants the truth. And it's really bother, bothering him. And they say, what you want is too difficult. Nobody can do it. And he says, fine. Let the executions begin. They're thinking, oh, we wish we would have reworded that. So Nebuchadnezzar assigns a man called Arioch to go and collect all the wise men of Babylon and execute them. And Arioch, the commander, goes out, and the first person he seems to come to to round about up to be killed is Daniel. And I want you to look at verse 14 with me. Then Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. You see, it's a high-pressure situation. Daniel's looking down the long end of a sword. And he still has wisdom and tact when he deals with these pagans. And then, then he asks what the situation is, and he listens. That's a new thing in our culture. When we're in panic, we listen. See, a Christian doesn't just jump to conclusions or jump off the deep end when he hears unnews, fake news. No, he listens carefully and he makes wise choices and he speaks with wisdom and tact. And David, I know we don't do that because I read Facebook. Well, Daniel then goes immediately to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego's dwellings. And he tells them, you have to pray. We're looking at this disaster. We're looking at all these people being exterminated. If something something isn't done and, and the Lord needs to give us the dream and the interpretation... One of the first things he does is he brings together his community of believers to pray for the situation. And they do. And in the middle of the night, Daniel has a vision. Now, a dream is a dream, but Daniel has a vision. So he's up, most likely praying. A vision means that you're awake. A dream means you're asleep. He has a vision. So he's up at night. You might say he has night vision. Be here all week. Be here next week too, I hope. 
But what I want you to see next is that even before Daniel knows everything is going to be all right, even before he has a chance to go and tell the king what he believes the translation and the dream is, he gives God the glory. Listen to this beautiful song or prayer that he wrote. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. Now look this word up, power, this week. That means encouragement, fortitude, to, to, to have the strength and the courage to do what's right. He's giving him wisdom and the, the ability, the wherewithal, to use that wisdom for the Lord and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So then Daniel goes back and he finds Arioch. I think this is important to note here. He doesn't sidestep protocol. He goes through the protocol, the, the, proper, the proper process. He goes through the proper process of telling the king. He's honoring Arioch by going to him first giving Arioch some of the thanks. So he goes to him and says, set me before the king, let me tell him I have the interpretation. Arioch walks into the room, and being a pagan, he says, I found a guy who can translate this. Take some of the glory for himself. But that's, you know, the pagan way. Daniel then walks up to the king. At this point, Mike, he could have said, hey, looky here. I, in my wisdom and my greatness, have interpreted this dream, and let me tell you how it is. But he doesn't do that. He gives glory to God. Listen to what he says. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. Praise the Lord that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries to us. Praise God in heaven that there is a God who gives us peace that surpasses all understanding. Amen? So he starts telling King Nebuchadnezzar what this dream means. And he starts to interpret for him. Now, I want you to see, he respectfully and tactfully talks to the king. Look at the first three words. Your majesty looked. He's still giving the king respect. He's still giving honor to this pagan king that has done these terrible things to him and his people. Even in this conflict of exile, he shows wisdom. And tact. And therefore, before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. 
The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of the iron iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. If you don't, if you have a hard time with that imagery, on wheat there's an outer shell. And as you shake and grind the wheat, that outer shell, which you can't digest, falls off and the wind just blows it away. And if it's not windy enough, they throw it in the air over and over time, over and over again to take that chaff away. And he says those, those metals are broken down, those, those precious stones, those stu- the, that, that metal that's precious to us just breaks and turns into dust and just blows away. But the rock, the rock that the statue, the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the entire earth. This was a dream, and now you will interpret it to the king, your majesty. You are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beast of the field and the birds in the sky. Whatever the, wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. This is both honoring and risky. Because he's telling Nebuchadnezzar that he didn't earn these things. That the God that he worships, Yahweh, is the God who has given all these things to him. He wouldn't have power if it weren't for Yahweh. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything and as iron breaks things into pieces so it will crush and break all the others just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partially of baked clay and partially of iron so this will be of the divided kingdom yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it even as you saw iron mixed with clay As the toes were partially iron and partially clay, so this kingdom will be partially strong and partially brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain, uh, will remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. He's saying, and it will be for those people. He's saying the opposite here to get a positive. Nor will it be left to another people. It will be for those people and those people from then on. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain. 
but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold into pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. Its interpretation is trustworthy. So if you're wondering about this interpretation, this dream, uh, the first, the head, is the Babylonian Empire. We know that one for sure. The rest that I'm going to tell you about are good guesses. But this one for sure is the Babylonian Empire of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, It's gold. And then we think the Medo-Persians, uh, the Medes and the Persians, are the silver part of the statue. And then for uh, the brass, that is the Grecian Empire. The iron represents, or we think it represents, uh, the Roman Empire. And then on down it is a divided kingdom. That's probably talking about uh, the kingdom of Rome as it disintegrated and started to disintegrate uh, around the third century. Okay? But what I want you to really see in the point here is that there's going to be a rock that strikes the feet of this statue. There's going to be a rock that comes up against all kingdoms. And it's going to smash all kingdoms. And not only is it going to smash all kingdoms, it's going to be greater than all kingdoms, but it's going to swell up and it's going to be like a huge mountain and that mountain will encompass the entire earth. Of course, we know today he's talking about Christ, the rock. Throughout Scripture, Christ is compared to the rock. But this rock grows in. The body of Christ grows and grows. We're talking about Christ's kingdom, the church, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. will continue to grow until it encompasses everything. We'll continue on reading. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that the offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all the wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon while Daniel himself remained in the royal court. I'll give you five takeaways from this story, and the lesson is yours. If you can remember all five of them, you don't have to write them down or take notes. There'll be a test as you leave. First point is, having influence in your culture usually happens in great conflict, threat, or inconvenience with that culture. Being people of, of courage means that we're going to have to respectfully stand out. And it's going to be risky, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to take your time, talent, and your resources to stand out for Christ. You know, it's easy to, to be a Christian inside these four walls on Sunday morning, right? I mean, we've got air conditioning, we've got padded pews, we've got uh, uh, 
pretty song leader. I mean, the song leader is pretty. I mean, no, the song leader sings pretty. Either way, it's right, right? Okay. It's really easy. It's really easy to be a worshiper, to be a Christian now. Uh, But it takes more than that. It takes standing out in the tough times. It takes being inconvenienced to stand out. There's an interesting story uh, about Greg Creed. Greg Creed is the CEO of Yum. Yum is the parent uh, company of Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC. Uh, Should come, he probably carries a defibrillator around with him, right? Well, when he was first assigned in 2015 to be CEO over Yum, sales were, were sagging. They were having troubles. They were wrestling with their sales. So Creed takes all of his upper uh, executives and puts them into a huge conference room and says, don't come out until you have a solution, until you have a motto, until you have some type of answer on how we're going to stop all of these sagging sales in Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC. So they go in, and they meet for nine hours. And they're trying to come up with a strategy. They're trying to come up with a new motto for the company that will lead it into profitability, into greater profits, greater sales. And finally, after nine hours, they come out. And they said, we have a motto, and we have a strategy that we think will take us in to the next decade. And he said, what is it? And they said, easy beats better. Easy beats better. Creed, in an interview, was quick to point out, there was a time in our generation, in the generation before, that better, higher quality won. That better and higher quality met the most sales or the greatest success in a company. But now in the 21st century, better, excuse me, it's so foreign to me I have to look at it, easy beats better. What he's trying to say is, what they were trying to say is that convenience is king. Convenience trumps quality. And I got to tell you, in our world today in the 21st century, I'm afraid that's probably true. I see it in the church. We're a society that values ease and comfort over better. In the church, I'm afraid that this ease has sometimes, and our convenience has sometimes become our idol. Can I tell you this morning, I'm not into guilt, okay? But I am into making points that I hope reach your heart. So I'm just going to say that right up front. I don't think guilt is a good motivator. But I want to challenge you this morning. Last Thursday night, when we were feeding the homeless, did you have a better place to be 
or was it just convenient to stay home? When we passed out the baby bottles and some of you didn't bring one back or give at all, was it just more convenient not to give? Or was it too much of a sacrifice to give? Three weeks ago, on a Sunday night, when we were sharing the love of Christ with those over by the Legion, those that live on the edge, on the marginalized life of just getting by, was it easier just not to show up? Sometimes I'm afraid that easy and convenience has become our idol. If you think the standard of Christian living is set by the attendance on a Sunday morning, you need to reread the gospel story. Amen? The time that Christ spent the most amount in conflict with people were people who thought that traditions and ceremony and legalism was the standard of godliness. And Christ tells us that mercy, love, justice, that's going out and setting the wrong things back to right, and faithfulness is the gold standard of godliness. Now, I don't want you to walk out that door and say that Keith said that attendance was not important. I didn't say that. By the way, I think attendance may be the best barometer that we have for showing your love for Christ and for the body of Christ, for the body of Christ, okay? But that's not the standard, that's not the gold standard in which we are called for, church. The gold standard which we are called for this morning is love, mercy, justice, and faithfulness. That's the gold standard. And if your life, if you think the Christian life is just about showing up, you're mistaken. It's about how you live and how you live around the pagans. The gold standard is love, mercy, justice, and faithfulness. Amen? Amen? Do we really think about that when we leave the church building? Because those things call us to inconvenience. And they make us deal with people that are not sometimes, Mike, they're just not lovable sometimes, are they? They're just It's hard to wrap your arms sometimes around them and love on them and be with them and put up with some of their thoughts. But we're called by Christ to do so. Because he did so. And because he did so, Keith's got a chance at eternity. I get off my soapbox. Going the wrong way. Number two. Desperation doesn't mean that you do away with wisdom and tact. Arioch shows up at Daniel's door to kill him. And Daniel still has wisdom and tact to deal with him. Folks, just because we're in desperate times doesn't mean that we can be jerks. 
I had a really tough situation one time, Rick. I, I was working at Soapware. And at Soapware, we're an electronic medical records software company. And I took care of all the online services. We had over 250 servers at the time. And they had to be up 24-7. And guess what? Hardware fails. If you don't know that now, it's coming. Hardware's going to fail. And every once in a while, hardware would fail. These are mission-critical services, like, like looking up drug interactions. Okay? So your doctor didn't give you something that would have an interaction with another one and kill you. Some of these mission-critical services were prescriptions. So if you were hurting or you needed something, you needed a drug, these, these services were going out and giving the prescriptions to the pharmacy so they could fill it for you. And some of them, some of these services were looking up people's allergies. So if you come in and you're in a bad situation, you're in the ER, and, and they want to give you something, and they can't look it up. Rick, it could cost a life. So there's a lot of pressure there. And one day, something happens, and all mission-critical services went down. And I went into a desperate situation, and I started commanding out what I wanted my staff to do. And after it was done, and after we had solved the problem, my chief operations officer comes to me and he says, Keith, I, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you that you're not the same person in a high-stress situation that you are at other times. What Don was telling me, Rick, was, Keith, you don't reflect the love of God in high-stress situations. Keith, you don't reflect wisdom and tact in high-stress situations. And it took me a while to figure out what Don was trying to tell me. He's a wise guy. He's an elder now at Bella Vista. He's done a lot of great things. He's the guy that kept uh, Lazy Boy furniture in America. If it weren't for him, they'd be overseas. He's dealt with a lot of people. But what he was trying to express to me is, Keith, when you're in a desperate situation, you act like a jerk. Folks, can I tell you, desperation doesn't mean that we do away with wisdom and tact. Look at verse 14 of your text. Ecclesiastes 8 and 6 says, For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Colossians says, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Number three, and I know I'm running long, but hold with me. Stand up for just a second. Take a deep breath. I'm losing some of you. It's getting warm in here. Living with integrity and having influence is a team effort. What's the first thing that we see Daniel do? He runs to his buds and he says, pray with me, pray for me, pray about the city. And they do. You can sit down now. Some of you can't stand any longer. I really am going long. I'm sorry. 
Number four, kings and kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of the rock lasts forever. Look at verse 44. You know what we have left of the Babylonian kingdom? Some really nice wall murals, Mike. That's about all we have left of it. And how about the Greeks? We've got some nice ruins. Okay, we've got the Parthenon. It's now being rebuilt. I had to take an old picture because they're rebuilding a lot of it. And how about Rome? Not much left of that city anymore. And can I tell you why their cities were going on and why their empires were really great? They thought they would last forever, that no, nothing would be done away with. And can I tell you this morning that I'm afraid some of us think that our kingdom might last forever. But it's not going to. There's only one kingdom that's going to last forever. And that's the kingdom based upon the rock, the kingdom based upon Jesus Christ. And it will, it will fill the entire world. Folks, I've got to tell you, there's some people that are saying, oh, Christianity is going away and the kingdom of God is, is on the edge and, and we may lose everything. Can I tell you the kingdom of God is in God's hand and it's okay and doing well. And the center of Christianity may move around, but it is still growing and it will still continue to grow until Jesus Christ comes back. It will crush all other kingdoms, bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. God's in control, number five. Even when ungodly people are in positions of power. You know, I, I know sometimes that you might maybe not agree with the president. That was supposed to be funny because a lot of you tell me different. But can I tell you that God works all things out for the good of those who love him? And even when we think that there are ungodly people in power, God can use them for good. In World War II, the Ministry of Information and in Winston Churchill had one big fear of the people. They thought the people would panic. And if the people of Britain panicked, all would be lost. So they had over 2.5 million of these posters printed up. Ended up, the invasion never happened. The bombings happened, but the real invasion, boots on the ground, never happened. So they only passed out a few of these posters. Keep calm and carry on. You know, I think if Daniel had a Gutenberg press available to him in Babylonia, he would have printed a poster much like this. It probably would have said, stay calm. God's kingdom will always carry on folks do you live like the kingdom of God will carry on forever and that it will break all other kingdoms down and it will be the final one when the end of time comes I challenge you to live that way when you walk out the door I'll be asking you the five points 
There are two doors at the front. Feel free to use them if you can't pass the test. Let's go to God in prayer.